Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. We have a lot of important announcements, so I'm going to make them all at the top of the show just to make sure everybody gets them. First, we're going to switch to weekly episodes. Yay! No more needing to remember which week we're releasing episodes. You'll get them every Thursday morning at 6.30 sharp Eastern Time. They'll probably be a little shorter than they have been in the past and might only feature one story instead of two because we found that running two long stories or one long story and a short story afterwards was a little hard to digest. You didn't really have enough time to process the first story before being thrown into another one. So that was another reason for the switch. So that starts next week. We have this episode out on June 29th and our next one will be out July 6th. That episode is going to be a little different. A couple months back, I had a conversation with Chris Baker Dersh about writing and podcasting. Chris is the producer and editor for the No Extra Words podcast, where her and her contributors read flash fiction pieces, generally a thousand words or less. We recorded our conversation. Chris was really nice and edited it down to something usable. It's about an hour long, and that's going to be our whole episode next week. Chris is also running the conversation on her podcast tomorrow, so if you can't wait, go check it out. You should check out No Extra Words regardless, though, because if you like this show, you're going to like No Extra Words as well. Check them out at noextrawords.wordpress.com and subscribe to No Extra Words wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get into our stories. At this point, it's officially summer. School is out for everyone, I hope, including and especially our teachers. Those lucky teachers, am I right? They get the summers off when no one else does. Man, that must be nice. I'll bet the protagonist in our first story, Everyone Hated Miss Loretta, by Susanna Solomon, would totally agree. Let's listen up to Susanna tell her story. Everyone Hated Miss Loretta I'm sorry you had to see the note, Loretta, Frank Ciccone said. His wife was distraught. She was wringing her hands and pacing their tiny kitchen on Cypress Road, trying not to trip over her mother's pink pedal pushers. They left it on my desk, Loretta sniffed, face up. She gathered a clean corner of her handkerchief into her hand and blew her nose. The tears kept coming and she swore her whole head was full of water. Quit crying and play cards, Loretta. I don't have all day, her mother demanded. Be quiet, Ma. Loretta had invited her 93-year-old mother to live with them a little over a month ago, and now she wasn't sure if it had been such a good idea. She swore Mom was growing smaller every day. Her chin barely cleared the Formica kitchen tabletop. Jesus, wasn't there someplace else that could take her, like the Bellinas Bridge Club, for good? Loretta wrung her hands and patted her white hair, which was falling out of her bun. Not the sloppy buns kids put their hair up these days, but a real bun, one that had once been tight. Now wisps of hair were falling on her eyes, on her forehead, and tickling the tops of her ears. I've never been mean to them, Frank, not one day. She tightened her thin lips. Bet it was that kid, George Johnson, too big for his britches and way too old for high school. Kid must be nearly twenty-two. Frank hadn't seen his wife this upset since they lost the last church bingo by just one lousy number. Loretta had sworn that Mrs. Willis, the sneaky old bat, had thrown some extra ping-pong balls into the wheel so she could win. That explained her smirk as she had left the fellowship hall with her fists full of dollar bills. But Loretta wasn't angry-angry, she was hurt-angry, which was not a good combination in Frank's book. I'm going to search every one of their lockers, Frank, 
What a rotten, heartless bunch of kids. You can legally do that, Frank asked. Someone has to pay, Loretta sniffed. Go get him, honey, her mother piped up. Let him know who's boss. Ma, leave me alone. Loretta spun around on her heels, grabbed a cast-iron fry pan from the cabinet, and slammed it on the stove. And it's sure as hell not going to be me, not this time. She stormed out the door. I have to take care of my petunias. Frank picked up the pieces of a cup and saucer her pounding had broken. That was two sets this week alone. He'd always known she was a bit of a hard-ass with everyone else, but at home she was a sweetie, always bringing him cream for his tea and playing cribbage until the little holes on the board started to swim before his eyes. She still tucked him in, but sex had become a dream that died years ago. Thirty minutes and two hands of gin rummy later, he limped out the back door and found his wife still digging in the garden. Clouds of dirt the size of dinner plates flew behind her. Kind of big for petunias, honey, he said. I buried them, she said, and climbed into a rather large hole and kept digging. They needed her teaching salary. Although close to sixty, Frank's social security had not started and his disability had run out because of the technicality. Technicality my ass, he thought, just another way the goddamn government was squeezing the little people. Their medical incompetence had ruined his ankle, and the discomfort was growing up his leg. First him, then Loretta. They couldn't afford to have her lose her job. He eyed her, then the little house and the rather sad garden due to California's long drought. He went to the garden shed and got a shovel of his own. All he knew was that he wasn't going to let the government take his sweetie. Jesus, Loretta, are you digging all the way to China? What? Me? No, Loretta sputtered. Just digging my own grave. If those kids hate me that much, there's no reason to try and get anything in those thick skulls of theirs. Without teaching, Frank, what's the goddamn point? And with that, she climbed into the hole and disappeared. Frank hobbled over to the edge, looked down. Loretta, his dearly beloved, was lying on the cold, dark earth at the bottom of a hole in a lacy dress. Her arms were folded over her chest, and her hat, that she'd made herself out of flowers and bird feathers, was hanging roughly across her face, covering most of it. Loretta, dear, he called tentatively. Was it time to call the authorities, put her in a home, call the paramedics, or crawl in there himself, in his Sunday suit and bad leg, and bring her out? There was no choice. He slid down beside her head and shoulders. She was a small, wispy woman. He admired her strength, the hole about three feet down, flat-bottomed and as long as, no, a little longer than she was. Where did you learn to dig like that? They're Marines, Frank, and don't you forget it, she lied. Now go away and leave me alone. Frank recoiled. Not his pretty fifty-something wife, ten years his junior. It had taken him so long to find a new squeeze since Sarah had had a heart attack and given up the ghost in the freezer aisle at Walmart. He didn't want to lose this one. Also, he smirked, Loretta was a bit of a drama queen. He'd teach her. He pulled over his own shovel, scooped some dirt off the side, and spread it over her ankles. More, more, Loretta cried. I like the feeling of dirt falling on me. It feels like a thousand hungry caterpillars, which made sense to her, but not to Frank, for he had not kept them as pets as she had. Across town, two boys were hanging out on the bank of the Alima Creek behind the Jacamini wetlands, throwing pebbles into the water, and since the sound amused them, they were having a contest to find the biggest rock and who could make the loudest splash. 
Thomas's once white shirt hung on a branch. Mom would not be proud when he'd got home. He'd fallen in, but it was too nice a day to care. But he did care about something he just did. He paused mid-toss. Blair, I don't think we should have left that note, especially on her desk. Miss Loretta has got to go, Blair said. Are you sure no one saw us do it? Thomas asked. He was usually not prone to being mean, but... Blair was a new friend, a new possible friend, and telling his parents a lie wouldn't work, not since they found him out the last time. If they find out, Blair, we're toast. Forget about it. Blair took one of his flat rocks and skipped it. As seniors, we've got all the power, Thomas. All we have to do is mention abuse, and she's screwed. That's just plain mean. If she had a switch, she'd beat us, and you know it. Thomas raised his eyes. Blair's eyes were red from smoking dope, his arms were sunburned, and his skin was glistening with sweat. He crowed and threw branches, twigs, and rocks into the river and smiled like an alien. Without saying goodbye, Thomas backtracked out of the wetlands and headed back to town with purpose. He was going to apologize. His mother always told him his conscience was going to get him in the end. And it was true. He felt so bad about what he'd done. For all her faults, Miss Loretta sometimes made them laugh and all the kids, but especially him, they'd been cruel. By the time he got to her house on the mesa, Thomas had swept his hair off his face and tried to dry the sweat from staining his shirt. He soon felt cold and clammy and was wet again, and he still felt bad they'd hurt Miss Loretta's feelings. He knocked on the Dutch door. No answer. Why was he so worried? He'd done a terrible thing. He knocked on the door again. What is all that infernal racket? A man pulled open the door, making Thomas feel off balance. The man, with stubby gray hair, was a lunk, six feet four, and heavy. Oh, I'm so sorry, Thomas said, backing away. He couldn't remember Miss Loretta's last name. Is Miss Loretta in? He squeezed one palm against the other to try to get the guilt out. She's busy, the man said. Couldn't you ask her for a minute of her time, Thomas pleaded. The kids and I, we... He stopped. He wasn't going to tell this guy anything. Miss Loretta? Thomas Crow? Honey, the man shouted, turning toward the inside of the house. Honey? Thomas felt doubly bad. Miss Loretta, the guy called out, one of your fans is here. The guy looked down at Thomas, making him feel very small. Thomas fidgeted. His confession to Miss Loretta was starting to feel a little stupid. She's out back. Wait here, the lunk said. Thomas thought that maybe he was her husband, but what did he know? It just didn't seem right that Miss Loretta, a prim and proper lady in class, would have a paramour or be a cougar. Thomas would have smiled a little to himself, but for lots of blue flickering lights from four computers and assorted monitors in the living room that made him feel a little odd. At school, she always railed against the need for machines. Thomas saw the lunk disappear into the back of the house. Dear, one of your students is here, he said and then the lung came back to the front door where Thomas was standing by a broken-down mailbox and stacks of newspapers. Come around the back, the lung said, and Thomas, a bit hesitant at first, had to run to catch up with him. Here's your boyfriend, Loretta, the lung said, and disappeared back into the house. Thomas didn't see anyone in the crabgrass and blossom-covered weeds. Miss Loretta, he called out. He wiped his damp hands on his shorts. I've come over to tell you something. I'm over here, Thomas, she trilled. 
But over where? It wasn't that big a yard. A few cottonwood trees, a broken and busted apple tree, a camellia bush in full bloom. No patio furniture. No patio. Miss Loretta, Thomas asked again. Come all the way in the back, Thomas. I'm in the middle of something. He stepped over a broken fountain. Maybe she was some kind of gardener in her spare time. If so, she had an odd way of doing it. I'm down here, boy. Her voice carried well on the windless day. Thomas saw a pile of dirt, a shovel, but no Miss Loretta. A hole was ahead. Was it digging for another tree? Hello, Thomas, she cried. Thomas looked all around the corner of the yard, then down. Two feet away, in a hole long enough for a 747, was his English teacher wearing a white bridal dress. Why was she wearing a costume? She wasn't in this year's play. She was covered in dirt, her white hair full of dust and her eyes full of fever. You need some help, Miss Loretta? That's a pretty big hole for a tree. It was a long hole, a cold dirt hole, and she was in it, sitting up. Measuring something, ma'am? It fits just fine, Thomas. She wiggled her hips from side to side. She reached up with her hands. It's perfect. For what? Miss Loretta, you sure you're okay? Oh, for Christ's sakes, are you dense as pace, Thomas? She climbed up onto her tippy-toes, looked him in the eye. Her face was even with his ankle. He scooched down. Some asshole left a nasty note on my desk this morning. With you kids these days, I figured it would be best to... To do what? Thomas asked. Die, she said. Go on now. Pick up a shovel. I'll lie down and make it easy for you. Frank the wuss, he was too chicken to finish the job. Teachers have it so easy. I think Miss Loretta would roll in her self-dug grave if she heard anybody say that. Susanna Solomon did a great job reading her story. When I first heard the recording, I thought something about the way she read it gave me a Charlie Brown vibe that I really didn't get from reading it myself, and I really liked that. Susanna Solomon makes her home in Northern California, where she splits her time between Point Reyes Station and San Anselmo, where she has lived for years. She's been writing a long time, and her work has appeared in Point Reyes Light, The MacGuffin Review, Foliate Oak Magazine, Meat for Tea, The Valley Review, and five times in the annual Redwood Writers Anthology. Her work has appeared in the Literary Journal of Carteret Writers, The West Wind Centennial, and online in the Mill Valley Literary Review, and Harlot Sauce Radio, and E-Zine. Her first book of short stories, Point Reyes Sheriff's Calls, came out in 2013. Her second collection of short stories, More Point Reyes Sheriff's Calls, came out in 2016. Although electrical engineering is her profession, writing is her passion and her love. Teachers are obviously not the only ones who like summer. This next group of kids had the perfect plan for their summer until, well, I don't want to spoil anything. I'll let Derek Lazarski tell himself, in his story, Fake Things Aren't Real. Fake things aren't real. We were playing a game of house in the courtyard the day we found the abandoned apartment. All of us were there. Me, my brother Mickey, Fernando, AJ, Anthony and Jayla, and Jesse, who was my best friend at the time. 
The courtyard was a big rectangular patch of grass and mud that was bordered on each side by the four apartment buildings that made up Cedar Grove condominiums. The beige brick walls gave us security. The pine trees and wood chips gave us comfort. That day, AJ and Anthony were kicking a dirty tennis ball back and forth like a soccer ball. Jayla spun around in circles, giggling and falling in the wood chips, something you still think is fun when you're five years old. That left Jesse and Mickey and I to figure out the theme of our game of house with Fernando. Only I didn't want Fernando bossing us around. He was the biggest and oldest of us, already in fifth grade, with a few dark hairs on his upper lip. He suggested we do a family Christmas, though it didn't sound like a suggestion. Yes, he looked around. It's almost Easter, she said. Shouldn't we do Easter? Easter's so lame, though, Fernando said. Then he remembered something. But we can hide Easter eggs. We would need substitute eggs, I asserted, just to clarify. I didn't want anyone taking eggs from their parents' refrigerator. Fernando worked this over in his head. Let's do Easter then. He said it like it was his idea. He called over AJ and Anthony. A dizzy Jayla followed. And then he told them our plan. Can't we just play tag around the shed? Or soccer? Or guns? Whined AJ, which was the one time his face wasn't adorable. We played soccer all last week and guns the week before, I said. Yeah, yes, he echoed. And tag around the shed is what we play when no one has any good ideas. Everyone was surprised when my brother Mickey spoke up. House can be fun, he said. House is boring, groaned AJ. Anthony agreed. House is what we play when we have no ideas, he said. Mickey looked at AJ and then spoke again, chewing his lip. I meant, house isn't that fun. Let's play Duck Duck Goose, Jayla shouted. That's when Yessie shut us all up with a look in her eyes that reminded us of our mothers. House doesn't have to be boring, she snapped. Then she grinned, especially with an Easter flavor. Anthony pointed back and forth between Jayla and himself. But we're Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't celebrate any fun holidays. Fernando's laugh echoed off the brick. <laughs> we're playing fake house and this is a fake Easter. Fake things aren't real, Yessie said, giving me a goofy smile. Fake things aren't real, I agreed, making the same smile back at her. Anthony looked at Jayla and then at AJ. He shrugged. Okay, fine. Let's do it. AJ rolled his eyes. Anthony kicked the tennis ball so hard it bounced off the brick wall. Jayla spun and fell down in the wood chips again. So Fernando divvied up roles and responsibilities for our game of house. He would be the dad, which, being the oldest, made sense, and yes, he would be the mom. Again, no surprise. She acted like a mom, 
and she had a crush on Fernando. That, and no one back then saw me as a mom. Not even me. So Fernando asked me to be the aunt, even though I wanted to be the difficult 16-year-old daughter. I won this battle. AJ and Anthony were sons. Twin sons, yes, he suggested. And this worked too, because although those two had very different skin colors, they were too much alike. Anthony's sister Jayla protested when Fernando suggested she be the maid, so she would be the grandmother, making Mickey the grandfather. With his big ears and small face, my little brother Mickey looked kind of like a grandfather. He had this great smile that a grandfather might have. His lips were tight in the middle and curved up at the corners. Almost like he didn't know if he should be smiling. Back then, I used to think that was adorable. Now I think it's also kind of sad. When I was ten years old, I thought the word courtyard came from a king's royal court. Which was funny to me because a king's court would have far fewer mud patches, anthills, and flattened potato chip bags than our courtyard. For three years, that rectangular field was home to us. Wind, rain, heat or cold, we were out there, making up games, playing sports, getting into trouble, and never fessing up. It was better than being inside. I knew we didn't have any money. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment with grainy brown carpet, and ate lots of cereal and chicken nuggets and stovetop macaroni and cheese. Mickey always wanted Spam, but Roger, my dad, wouldn't eat it. So Mickey would only get it on his birthday, and even then, Roger would complain. One time, a friend from school had me over for dinner. They lived in a big brick house that had a chandelier and wood floors. We ate grilled fish and garlic mashed potatoes. After dinner, I heard her mother tell my friend that she did a nice thing having me over. I didn't know what that meant for a long time. Every day after school, the courtyard gang would meet behind the shed, an ugly brown maintenance shack surrounded by pine trees tucked in one corner of the courtyard. It started with me and Yessie waiting at the bus stop together, becoming friends, and then meeting back at the shed after school every day to talk. She was in second grade, and I was in third, but our lockers were near each other in the hallway, and we rode the bus together. We'd talk about school, teachers, our moms, and which strip malls on Schiller Avenue we would go to if we had the guts to walk down a busy street with no sidewalk. We never did. The courtyard of Cedar Grove condominiums was our entire world. Sometimes my mom would make me take Mickey outside. But mom, can't he watch TV? I'd plead. Just put on Disney sing-along. Get him some fresh air, she'd say with half-lidded eyes. I need some quiet time before dinner. I knew what quiet time meant. It meant lying on the couch and falling asleep to a Lifetime movie 
with a vodka tonic on the table. It didn't help that Mickey always wanted to go outside, especially if AJ and Anthony were out there. But it was in playing out in the courtyard that I first realized Mickey was different. He was the only little brother I had, and he was five, and shy. So I thought it was typical for your little brother to be an aloof little dweeb. But when you plunked him in the middle of the courtyard game, that's when I first saw it. The thing that made him different from anyone I'd ever meet, or even hear of, in my entire life. The courtyard was surrounded by apartment buildings, but the buildings were surrounded by a street named Cedar Grove Lane. Cedar Grove Lane was the street on our mailing address, the one on all the bills. But it wasn't even a real street. It didn't go anywhere. All it had was two exits to Schiller Avenue and four dumpsters, one for each apartment building. Sometimes, when we knew our parents wouldn't know, we left the courtyard and played in the street. The day we found the abandoned apartment, Yessie and I were collecting rocks next to one of the dumpsters on Cedar Grove Lane. We didn't always play by the dumpsters, but this was the cleanest one. Being the cleanest dumpster meant it smelled the least like rotten apples and was usually surrounded by the fewest newspaper ads. It was, however, the one that had the most black gunk stuck to the bottom. Anthony called the black gunk trash cake, and one time he threatened to put it in Yessie's ear for telling everyone that he had an Audi belly button. So from then on, it was called trash cake. The two of us were talking while stuffing rocks as big as Easter eggs into the pockets of our jeans. My jeans were tight. I'd gotten bigger. Not taller. Bigger. Yessie was telling me, again, about her crush on Fernando. Peggy, what I mean is that I know that I don't know if I want him to like me. Maybe I want him to like me. Like, I know I don't know. She and I had the same conversation about 20 times before. He spits on the ground a lot, I said, picking up a rock the size of Mickey's fist. From where we were, we could see the rest of the gang in the courtyard. They were planning the layout of our imaginary house. He also smells like a sock sometimes, I said. I like that smell. Yes, he squatted down to look at the rocks. There were a lot of them because cars would kick them over here from the construction next door. And he's got really blue eyes, she said. He's got ghost eyes, I said. And he's smart, she said. And strong. She was right about that. Fernando can be a jerk, I said. He's nice. And you like his spit, I said. You want to know what it tastes like. No, you didn't, she screeched, raising a rock to throw at me, a reluctant laugh growing on her face. I looked back into the courtyard to see the other five laughing and getting into an argument. Someone threatened to pile drive somebody.
That's fine, she said. You want to know what AJ's spit tastes like? I shrugged, pocketing one rock and dropping another. That's fine. Maybe I want to know what everyone's spit tastes like. Across the street, AJ and Fernando were wrestling, which, of course, wasn't going to end well for AJ. But then Anthony jumped on Fernando's back. When they wrestled to the ground, Jayla jumped headfirst onto the dog pile. Break yourself free, Mickey yelled at them. Slide out! Escape! You're gross, Jesse said to me. No, I'm cool. She sighed, thought a second, and then put a hand on my shoulder. How about you're gross to me, but cool to you? Okay, I said. I mean, I think it's okay. We turned to see Anthony and AJ fighting to their feet, with Fernando still crawling behind them. Yesy! Peggy! they called to us. Anthony and AJ were about to run across Cedar Grove Lane to meet us at the dumpster. Mickey followed close behind. But when they got to where the grass met the street, a car flew by them out of nowhere. All three of them stopped dead in their tracks, eyes and mouths open in terror. Mickey's eyes met mine, and I knew both our hearts were pounding. We all cried out at the same time, Whoa! It wasn't the first time any of us had almost gotten hit by a random car. On Cedar Grove Lane, people didn't exactly follow the traffic laws all the time. When we all caught our breath, Anthony had the nerve to ask, Do you want the washer and dryer by the kitchen or by the bedrooms? Yeah, we don't have to put it in the basement if we don't want to, AJ added quickly. It's a fake house. Mickey nodded at this, just like he nodded at everything AJ and Anthony said. Sometimes they'd include him, sometimes they wouldn't. That's what happens when people like you but think you're weird. But Yessie wasn't concerned with the house. She pointed at the car down the street and screamed, Excuse me! But can we talk about what just happened? Okay, Mom, Anthony and AJ blurted out together. Mickey laughed at that for like a minute straight. Back in the courtyard, everyone examined the rocks we gathered, found them suitable to use as Easter eggs, and then we toured the imaginary house. The kitchen was against one brick wall, the bedrooms against another, the washer and dryer next to the bedrooms, and the dining room in the middle. A good game of house has a balance of dullness and excitement. Our game was no exception. Fernando and Yessie made Easter dinner together, and they both tried ordering us around in different ways. Mickey and Jayla, the grandparents, sat on the cement laundry vent for basement D and played cards, which is what Yessie's grandparents and AJ's grandparents did, so it made sense. As the teenager, I complained that I wanted to go to the movies with my friends, but Yessie said I was not going anywhere on Easter or I'd be grounded, 
So I said, I wish I had better parents. And she said, you get the parents you get. I had nothing to say to that. So I stormed off in a huff to go play catch with my brothers, Anthony and AJ. When I held up my hands, they threw the tennis ball to me. Whose ball is this anyway? I asked. The boys shrugged. We found it wedged under someone's porch, AJ said. I was surprised. For all the rules we disobeyed, we rarely went on people's porches. There was no patio furniture, Anthony said. The windows were dark, so free tennis ball. During dinner, Fernando tried assigning seats for the kids, but we clearly would not listen. He threatened to ground us, but then yes, he threatened to ground him. So he threatened to hit her because he wanted to be a, quote, bad kind of daddy. Then Yessie said that her parents told her that sometimes husbands actually do hit their wives and that they shouldn't. And then Anthony said that white people did that more often than black people, which AJ responded with, do not, and then black people hit their kids. Anthony didn't like this. Giving a whooping to your kids is different, he said. A few of us nodded. Then Jayla asked why we call them white people and black people anyway, because white looks like notebook paper and black looks like trash cake, but people's skin isn't the color of paper or trash cake. Fernando told her to shut up, and Mickey threatened to ground everyone, and Jayla threatened to ground him. And then AJ said the mashed potatoes were good, and we all agreed and thanked our parents for the meal. After dinner, we split into pairs to hide the Easter eggs. Everyone took four rocks and went out into the courtyard to hide them, and then came back. I hid mine on top of the shed, between the transformer and the big bush, under the railing that led to basement A, and on my family's back porch. When AJ went out, there were only three rocks left for him, so she took the tennis ball, too. It would be the last Easter egg. While each of us went out, the rest stayed behind and, to Jayla's delight, played Duck Duck Goose. The game eventually devolved, as it always did, into a dog pile. Our mom worked the deli at the pick and save, so she always came home smelling of dead meat. Her work shirt, apron, and visor were always coated in a thick slime. After I turned nine, her hours changed so she'd get home after we got home from school. By that point, she said I was mature enough to look after Mickey. She'd make us spaghetti, and then we'd go outside while she watched TV, and later we'd come in and join her until bedtime. At least I would. Mickey might run off to our bedroom, or read in the corner, or sit on the floor of the kitchen with his blocks. My mom didn't seem to care. Your brother's just weird, she'd say, waving her hand. Roger drove trucks across the Midwest, so he was only home two or three nights a week. The nights he was home would be spent in his recliner drinking can after can of Budweiser and making jokes at the TV that sometimes I laughed at and sometimes were too mean for me. 
My parents didn't talk much to each other, and if they did, they were fighting about money or about Roger being out late. Or they were in the bedroom. On Saturday nights, sometimes we'd play a board game, like Monopoly or Upwards, and they'd take us to the park or zoo once in a while. But the more years in perspective you have, the more you realize that those infrequent special days don't make up for the years spent sitting in the living room with the TV saving you from talking to one another. We weren't the only ones in the courtyard gang who would have preferred different parents. Fernando was a jerk, but his parents were divorced, poor guy, and his mom would always say, Fernan, why can't you be nice like your friends? AJ's parents were friendly, but kind of sad. They each had droopy eyes and frowning mouths and boring jobs working behind counters. Whenever we went up to Anthony and Jayla's door, we hoped their dad would answer, because their mom would always give us a lecture about how unsafe the courtyard was and how the world was an evil place. Yessie's parents were sweet, but they worked way too many hours because they had to send money back to Mexico so Jessie could go outside whenever she wanted. None of them really knew what we did in the courtyard. They told us not to play in the street, not to go into basements, to stay off people's balconies. But once they let us outside, they gave up their ability to enforce. They gave up their oversight. They were probably grateful that we didn't need their attention. Because for those hours that we were outside, whether any of us wanted to admit it, we didn't have parents, and they didn't have children. I should have known that was where we would find the tennis ball, an Easter egg wedged under the same concrete patio slab of the darkened apartment where AJ found it. It wasn't long until Fernando and Jayla and AJ were all standing on the patio. Anthony tried pulling his sister off, but she was a strong little girl, and soon all of us were on the concrete slab with no one else around, and the screen door of the apartment hung open ever so slightly. We all must have had the same idea, but it was Fernando who finally turned the knob on the door, and Fernando who pushed it open and went in when he saw it was empty. Anthony and I protested, but AJ and Yessie followed him in. Mickey didn't know what to do, but I pulled him in. I did it. His big sister. In the end, would it have mattered? Who knows? The floor plan of the apartment was an inverted version of my family's apartment. The carpet was a cream color, the counter a sparkly pink ceramic. Smelled a little musty, but the lights in the faucet worked. No one dared use the toilet. All the rooms were stark empty. Since it was already dark, we agreed to meet at the shed the next day. Then we'd have more time in the apartment the next night. Mickey and I said nothing to each other the next morning while our mom was getting us ready for school. On the bus, Yessie said she wanted to play cards or board games in there, things we couldn't do outside. Maybe even walk on the counters and hide in the cabinets. She whispered in excitement so the kids around us wouldn't hear. The refrigerator worked. 
We could fill it with snacks. Yeah, or leave the freezer door open and play Alaska, I said. We thought about nothing else at school. I didn't talk to any of the courtyard gang, but my class passed AJ and Anthony's class in the hall, and we all gave each other the same look. After school, we had our snack, left our mom a note that we would be outside, and all met at the shed just before 4 o'clock. I got out here a little earlier and just walked around, Fernando said, checking things out. Not a lot of cars in the parking lot in front of the building. No noise or lights in the apartments around there. Coast seems clear. Everyone was impressed with Fernando's intelligence, especially Yessi. Anthony brought his box of Lincoln Logs and Legos. Jayla brought three Barbies, two black and one white. AJ had the tennis ball still. Lucky tennis ball, he smiled at us, showing a gap where his tooth fell out the week before. Yes, he had a cooler with juice boxes and a big bag of pretzels. Fernando had two blankets and two pillows. My mom won't know they're gone, he smirked. I brought upwards, a board game I liked. Mickey brought a book. My Side of the Mountain. I don't know if he understood it yet, but he was a good reader for being that young. Furtively, quietly, and with surprising organization, we each slunk into the abandoned apartment and shut and locked the back door behind us. We were in. When we were done silently celebrating, AJ and Anthony started building Lego structures on the counter and I used upwards tiles in their structures to spell out signs on buildings. Jayla's Barbies towered over the city, while Fernando and Yessie drank juice boxes and talked about school and music and movies. Mickey watched us when he wasn't sitting on a blanket in the corner, looking at his book. When I looked over at him, he smiled at me with that goofy grin like he was so happy, but also checking to see if that was okay. We never had so much fun. We made all sorts of noise and bounced the tennis ball around and threatened to throw people in the shower. We ran down the hall. Then we sat in the living room and played Duck, Duck, Goose, which ended in a dog pile on the carpet. We went back to the apartment the next day bringing more pillows and blankets this time. We turned on the blinds and had a mini slumber party in one of the bedrooms, the one that would have been mine and Mickey's, and passed around a flashlight and told scary stories. On the third day, AJ, Anthony, Jayla, Mickey, and I decided we would turn the whole kitchen into a Lego town. We each filled pillowcases with all the Lego bricks and blocks and building materials we had at home to make the kitchen a masterpiece. We had all the counter and cabinet space we could ever dream of. So at a quarter to four, we met behind the shed, and shortly after we were in the apartment, ecstatic to be building our world. But Yessie and Fernando preferred to stay in the living room, where she showed him a line dance they learned in gym that day. 
after building for an hour, we realized they were just sitting on the blankets and pillows, talking. They still didn't want to play, so we went back to it, placing Barbies and army figures and trolls and ninja turtles throughout the plastic metropolis. The kitchen counter was covered in building block skyscrapers. Shops and houses led around the counter to the sink, which was the Grand Canyon with a waterfall. Up in the cabinets were cities in the sky, home of the sky people, and below the cabinets was where the trolls lived. It was a war, with the trolls and ninja turtles trying to save the downtown from giant Barbies and baby dolls. There were romances that stretched allegiances. Deals were made. Juice boxes were wagered and lost. Time flew. When it was getting dark, we looked for Fernando and Yessie, but they were gone, murmuring in the bedroom, the one that would have been my parents' bedroom. When I realized this, some unknown instinct grabbed a hold of me. I charged down the hall and flung open the door so hard it banged a loud echo off the empty walls. There was a funky smell that hadn't been there before. Fernando and Yessie were lying on a blanket on the ground, him close to her, a look on her face that I didn't know what to do with. What are you doing? Just talking, Fernando snapped. Chill out, Jelly Roll. That's what he called me when he wanted to be mean. I don't think I could beat you in a fight, Fernando, but I know I could hurt you. Relax, Jesse broke in. It's fine. It's not fine, Fernando joked. You were going to take your shirt off for me. No, I wasn't. He put his hand on her shoulder, but she shrugged it off and stood up. You relax, he said, now defensive. It's not like you have anything. That's why I want to see. I'll bet your chest looks like mine. You're going to make me puke, I said. Weirdo. He laughed like it was a joke that I had even said anything. We found something else, though, he said, and then he bolted to his feet toward the bedroom closet. What is it? I asked. Yes, he raised her eyebrows. This place isn't empty. Fernando opened the closet. This is where the funky smell was coming from. A bundle of bath towels lay on the floor, surrounded by potato chip wrappers and apple cores and empty beer cans. Weird stains shadowed the carpet. Then, the rest of the gang was behind me. I could feel it before I turned and saw them. Anthony and AJ darted around me to see if there was anything of value. There wasn't. Just the nasty towels and a couple bags of garbage. One of the bags had some uneaten food in it. Jayla took an apple. Fernando and Yessie got one bag of potato chips. Anthony and AJ split the other. And, somehow, Mickey found a can of Spam. And his small face grew 
into that tight-lipped smile again. It was cold in the hallway when we filed out of the bedroom, but then we heard a voice. We all froze, seven of us stuffed in the hallway, our breath caught in our throats. He was ragged, not very tall, standing in the living room with clenched teeth and a receding hairline of straight black hair that fell back so he looked like a bird. He had splotches of hair all over his face. His coat was long and gray and dirty, and he wore black boots, smudged khakis, and a white t-shirt. What are you kids doing in here? He barked. All our knees nearly went out at once. Anthony's voice shook like a branch. You live here? He spoke with slurred words. Aspirin nighttime construction next door, yeah? He jerked his head awkwardly, teeth still clenched. Concrete iron curtain, big mall, yeah? No one knew what he was talking about. All our hearts were pounding. So, the corner of his lip lifted up like he was trying to smile. Who's got the right answer? No one spoke. Then, various screams echoed off the walls as we tried, one by one, to run past him towards the back door. First Anthony and Jayla, then Yessi and Fernando, and because of the way we were positioned, I was next. Mickey! I yelled and turned in from the back door to see what I already knew had happened. The drifter's dirty hand had grabbed my brother by the wrist and was shaking him furiously. The can of spam Mickey clutched stuck straight in the air, the light glinting off its golden metal, my brother's face grotesque with terror. Hungry rambling animals, huh? The drifter's voice echoed in the empty living room. His thin, sinewy arm thrashed Mickey's tiny body like a stuffed animal, lifting him off the ground until my little brother dropped his precious can of Spam. Then, from nowhere, a miracle happened. As though shot from a cannon, the tennis ball drilled the drifter right between the eyes. Stunned stupid, he dropped Mickey and looked up to see four-foot-tall AJ staring at him from the hallway, his chest heaving, his little fists raised. I screamed, Run! 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 And they did. But as my little brother ran past me and out the door to the darkness of the wide-open courtyard, the look on his face, the shocked wide eyes, the sticky teeth, and most of all, the naked understanding, that was the look of his character being set in motion. That night we told our mom and the next day she told Roger and we were pretty much grounded for a month. No more shed, 
No more courtyard game, really. Our parents went back and got our toys, but Mickey didn't seem to care. He just read mostly after that. We didn't play board games or action figures anymore. He talked to me when he had to, to Mom when he had to. He hardly ever talked to Roger. He saw the school psychologist, but they never said there was anything wrong with him. He was just a different person. So when Mickey was 16, he ran away. Like kids threatened to do, but he actually did. No trace of him. By that point, I was in college, living in the dorm, when my mom called and told me he was gone. Her tone sounded immediately defeated and accepting. I came back home, we talked to the police, went on the news, all that. But I knew from that first phone call with her that we probably wouldn't find him. He wasn't like anyone else. Everyone is attached to something, like people or responsibilities. He wasn't attached to anything. At 16, he was an adult, and then he was gone. Now it's almost 20 years since the courtyard game broke up, and I've lost touch with almost everyone. I'm Facebook friends with Yessi, but I never sought anyone else out online. Yessi has tabs on them. I have high school and college friends. I bring my daughters out to the suburbs to see my mom once a month. She's in a different apartment building, but every time I'm there, it reminds me of Cedar Grove. At least she's happier since she divorced Roger. I wonder if he's happier, too. A few years after Mickey left, my mom started getting letters from him. Unsigned, no return address. She tried tracking him at one point, but it was exhausting. A fruitless search. Better just to accept it. I haven't told her that he messaged me on Facebook recently. I broke down the first two times I read the message, but now I can do it without crying. He basically said he was sorry for leaving me. He needed to try to get away from the things that confined us to see if he could do it. It was like my side of the mountain, he said. The thing he didn't realize at the time, though, was that under the spell of his teenage anger and righteousness, he totally forgot about me. And by the time he realized what he did and what he lost, the guilt of it was so heavy, it took him years to work through it. But other than me, he said, he realized that all the things that would have trapped him in that life we were born into, living in apartment buildings with deadbeat parents, they were just beliefs. They were just illusions. They were fake. And, and he actually wrote this. Fake things aren't real. He said he learned that from me. He looks good. That relieved me more than anything, that he wasn't some toothless drifter. He's a personal trainer. Looks like he's into ziplining, weird spiritual retreats, stuff like that. Still reads a lot. I want him to have a pretty girlfriend, but at least he's smiling in a lot of his pictures. It's the same smile I remember, with the tight lips and curved up corners. He's grown into it, but it still looks, 
at least to me, as if he's wondering if he should be happy. I haven't messaged him back yet. He messed me up for a long time. That, the girls have dance practice and clarinet lessons. I'm showing at least five houses right now. And next week, my husband and I are having Rachel and Michelle stay with their grandmother while we head to Puerto Rico. My husband says I don't have to message him back before the trip. Just take the vacation. Then think it through. Derek is an emerging writer whose poetry has been featured in Curbside Splendor, Portage Magazine, and City Brink. But he has also completed two novels, a short story collection, and a full-length poetry collection. A portfolio of his work can be found on his website, www.dereklazarski.com. That's www.dereklazarski.com. When not writing, he works as an administrator in higher education. He lives in Chicago with his wife and two cats, the latter of which helped him type this bio. Thanks to Derek and Susanna for sharing their stories with us. Thanks to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart. And thanks to you for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. Just a reminder that we're going to switch to weekly episodes, so look for a new one from us next Thursday. It'll be a conversation between me and Chris Baker-Dirsch of the No Extra Words podcast. And after that, we'll be featuring more secondhand stories. Subscribe, rate, review, slow down, and listen up.